because at the pastor elder retreat recently, uh, you may wonder, what, what do you talk about at these retreats? And so one of the pre-retreat discussions among the pastors is, what do we say when people ask what kind of church Four Oaks is? You know, and that's a great question. You may be wondering, and we could not reach consensus. We didn't know what, what we call ourselves. No, I mean, we don't have a, a denominational billboard. We, you, you know, we've been a, a church in existence for, for 25, almost 30 years. And so how do we answer that question? What kind of church is Four Oaks Community Church? And, and there's several ways that we, could, that we could run it. That one is just to say we are an evangelical, theologically conservative, non-denominational Bible church. That might be one way to say it. You could also say that we're, we don't feel like we need to fly alone, so we're not an autonomous church. We, we part, we're part of a family of churches, a network of churches called the Sojourn Network, where we partner together for mission and training and, and such. We're in fellowship with other churches across the country. Or even more broadly speaking, you could say we're a product of the, of the Protestant Reformation, of, of reformational theology that reclaimed sort of the five solas, of the Christian life, to, to the glory of God alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So there, there are several ways to answer that, but what I would say is that what each of those ways of answering that question have in common is this. All of them signify a particular relationship that we have with the Word of God. Contra to Roman Catholicism, which sees the locus of authority primarily in the church and in men and women interpreting what the Bible says. We believe that the church, while a valid authority, ultimately only rightly derives its authority from the Word of God, which means that anytime you hear something coming from this pulpit or in your community group or from some other source that is, that is contrary to what the Word of God clearly teaches, we would say that authority in that situation is not a valid one. And so the way we articulate this is found in our statement of faith. And let me read that portion for us, and we're going to see it up here on the, on the screen. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We're going to unpack this a little bit, but fundamentally what we're saying, folks, is that you cannot have a spiritual life apart from the Word of God. You cannot set Jesus above the Word of God and say, well, I worship Jesus, but the Bible, eh. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This whole thing speaks about me. This whole thing is fulfilled in me. And, and, and if you're someone who says, well, well I, I'm, Jesus, I'm a Jesus guy, not a Bible guy, then I, I, would, I would simply ask you, then who is this Jesus? How do you know about him? Who is he? Who's he revealed himself to be? We can't know these things apart from the word of God. It is our ultimate final authority. Now, we don't worship the Bible, but we know that God's word endures forever. It's his means of sustaining and feeding his people. Now, we, we know that the Bible's authority has been attacked 
for as long as there has been a Christian faith. We can go back as far back as Marcion in the third century uh, to liberal scholars in the 19th and 20 centuries to the present with, with scholars like Bart Ehrman who teaches at University of North Carolina. Um, but these attacks against the Bible's authority really hit the mainstream when that great work of fiction came out, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Okay, Now, I, I, now, I don't know how many of you would, would really confess to seeing that movie because you secretly love Tom Hanks, okay? <laughs> Me, okay. But it gives this vision of the idea that this church was this controlling entity in reality. And sort of the way the Bible came into being is that all of these guys were, were in a smoke-filled room. I don't know if it was filled with smoke, but you, you get the idea. And they sort of had a vote. These books make it in, and these books don't. And the way that those, those decisions were made had all to do with political power and control and money. And, and, and for the uninitiated to, to see something like that or to read something like that, I know some of you are already contemplating your book burning immediately after this, after this message. It can be a little bit disconcerting. But interestingly, our topic, our, our, our text this morning, which is really not going to be our text, gives us an opportunity to talk about these very issues. We've been preaching through John, and we've come to this section in 7 and 8 of, of John where Jesus is in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and, and the crowds are all uh, aghast at his teaching, and they're divided about who he is and who he claims to be. And what's, what's, what's sort of bizarre is that in the middle of this discourse— which, which Josh was leading us through last week in 752, we have this sort of this story plopped right down into the middle of this discourse. And then we see in verse 12 in chapter 8, the discourse kind of picks up from there. Now, this is a well-known story, and I'm just going to read it, and, and I'm not going to ask us to stand, and you'll, you'll understand why in just a second. But let, 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 me, let, me, let me read this passage. Even... Secular folks who've never read much of the Bible oftentimes will, will quote the most famous line of this, let him who is sin, without sin among you be the first to, to throw a stone at her, right? Kids, you've used that on your, on your parents. But after this, after this message, they'll be throwing all sorts of stones at you, I promise. Okay, here we go. 753, they each went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, what's interesting about this passage is the first is what I just mentioned. It doesn't 
seem to fit. You have this whole discourse in the temple that's going on, and this, this story seems somewhat strangely out of place in terms of the context and flow. Secondly, um, and you'll have to trust me on this, I didn't learn enough Greek to be able to tell you this myself, but I read Don Carson, and he said it's true, so I believe it. But the verbiage is very different here. The text, the titles, the, the grammar, it's not written in John's sort of characteristic Yohin-like style. Even more disconcerting, look in your Bibles for a minute, or if you're using a tablet, it might say this. There's a little notation right before this passage. What does it say? Thank you for playing, okay? Read no further. What does it say? It says, this text is not found in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. Hmm. Then you look down at the bottom, and it will even say, sometimes you find this passage after... Uh, John 7, sometimes after John 21, or sometimes even in Luke. Some manuscripts have it in Luke. But the oldest, most reliable Greek manuscripts don't have it at all. In fact, I'll tell you, most scholars, and I I don't mean crazy, uh, you know, uh, progressive liberal way out there on a limb. I mean conservative Orthodox scholars, Carson, Leon Morris, F.F. Bruce, all would maintain that this story, in fact, was not part of the original Greek manuscript, not a part of the original Bible. Now, you may be here this morning and say, well, la-di-da, okay, let's, let's, get, let's get the Kennans and Angie and Scott back up here and talk about missions. So what, what, are, what are we really doing? Because it raises a foundational issue, doesn't it? That can be a little disconcerting. It, you... you you said, Pastor Paul, you've just said that our whole life is, and our whole church life is based upon this. How can I trust it then? What, what, what are you telling me? Related questions are, well, well, then tell me, how did these particular books come to be in the Bible, in the New Testament canon? How do we know that this version of John's gospel is reliable and the accurate and only one? Well, this text, I think, gives us an opportunity to address some of these issues. And let me just say, we're not preaching on this text. Although, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to come back around and make a couple of practical points of things that are affirmed in this text that are also affirmed in the rest of John's, John's gospel. This is going to be teachy more than preachy. Okay, so, so you need to know that the way we typically preach and teach here is that we go through books of the Bible. And whatever the passage says, that's what we're going to preach on. So at the pastor retreat, we did not break out the pastor Ouija board and say, God, what do you want, where do you want us to go this Sunday? We don't, we don't, it's not the way we do it. But I think because this is so compelling that when you read this and you read little notes, it can be disconcerting. So we want to take the opportunity to address this. Now understand something. We're going to fly at 50,000 feet today. And there's some of you who are going to have a 1,000-foot questions or ground-level questions. Now, some of you are going to think we shouldn't be flying the plane at all, okay? Right? That, that, that's fine. But I hope that you'll be convinced by the end of this time on two things. Number one, if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to walk away with your confidence bolstered in the Word of God. That, in fact, what you hold in your hands truly is the inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God, inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you can base your life on. Because remember, we all have an authority. We all live our lives according to some authority. And I want you to be assured through the Holy Spirit that this book is true. 
Secondly, you may be someone in here this morning who has serious doubts about the Bible. You think that many things that are found in the Bible are just completely incompatible with, with the modern mindset or the postmodern mindset. It does not seem, uh, it just seems highly unlikely to you that God could still communicate through a text that's two or three or four thousand years old. Or you may be a skeptic or you just may be, may be doubting in general. I really hope and pray that by the end of this time, you will have some sort of track to run on to pursue what I think are, are, are good answers to, to your questions. Okay, a couple, of, a couple more qualifiers, then we're going to dive in. Later this spring, after Easter, we are going to have a pastor class where we address this specific issue. It's going to, we'll call it, you know, the Bible and the canon or, um, you know, something, you know, why we believe the Bible, where we'll, we'll dive into all of these things in much greater detail. We're just going to fly very high, give you a few categories, but here are a few resources between now and then. The first is, is Michael Kruger's book, Revisiting the Canon, and he has a great um, website called Canon Fodder. I just love it. Okay, C-A-N-O-N. I, I think that's wonderful. Canon Fodder. John Piper, has, if, you, if you're not into reading and you just want to listen on your way to work or while you're ostensibly working out or what have you, um, Why We Believe the Bible, it's five sessions. You can get it at desiringgod.org. That's all free, by the way. And then the standard in the field, F.F. F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Okay, those are a couple of resources for you. And again, we'll be circling back around to that later in the spring as part of our, our pastor's class. Let me introduce this first category for you to give you some place to kind of plant your flag and, and hoping you can better understand what we're going to be talking about here. Most critiques of the Bible, you know, those that seek to, to undermine it, to, to nip at its authority, to question its reliability— operate some, from a sort of extrinsic framework. And by that, what we mean is, and you see this popularized in Dan Brown, but it's really evident everywhere, this idea that, that the New Testament canon came into being by virtue of the fact that a bunch of dudes in a room decided it was going to be. Hey, what do you think of Peter? Do you like Peter? Do you like Peter? I like Peter. Raise your hand. Okay. I like, do you like Thomas? No, I don't like Thomas. He do, Thomas doesn't get in. That's, okay, so th- that, that's the external theory of Scripture, but there's an intrinsic theory of Scripture, okay, which simply says this. The New Testament came into being not externally because some group of guys said it was. It came into being organically within the Christian community, naturally, that the Holy Spirit pushed forward the Word of God where what we fundamentally did was recognize the truth for what it was, that it was apostolic, that it was based upon reliable witnesses, that it was, that it was true, that it was life-changing. I, I kind of liken it to this. When we think about appointing elders in this church, we have to ask the question, who appoints them? Okay? And Acts 20 tells us this, the Holy Spirit appoints elders. You know, we don't sit in a room and say, well, who would be a good elder this year? That's not not how that works. What we believe is that the Holy Spirit sets aside men who begin to demonstrate the character and give qualities of an elder. They're shepherding their home well. They're shepherding their community group. 
They're, they're discipling. They're pouring themselves they, they, into other people. They're exhibiting certain character qualities. And all we are doing as a church is coming kind of behind them and saying, God, we recognize what you're doing here. And we affirm this person into the, the calling they have. And, and, and it's an imperfect analogy. But in much the same way, there was very little debate okay, about these books. Their apostolic authority, their authenticity was so compelling. It was so compelling that we merely, the church merely recognized what had already become true. And we're going to try to unpack this a little bit. Understand that for the early church, they only had one Bible. So when Paul talks about 2 Corinthians 3.16, for all Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, what Bible is Paul talking about? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. And remember, the Old Testament, um, another word for testament is covenant. The Old Testament is God's written record of how he relates to the people of Israel how they are to worship him and obey him and to live their life out before him. And in the Old Testament, it is pointing, though, in Jeremiah 31 to what? A new covenant. God says that, that you're operating under the Old Covenant as, as contained in this Old Testament canon, but there's a new covenant. See, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for you, and, he's going to, and the Holy Spirit's going to write his name upon, upon your hearts. And so even Jews at the end of the intertestamental period were looking, they, they knew the story was incomplete. They knew the Old Testament was pointing to something, and they were looking for that Messiah. All of the first Christians in the early church were all Jews. All of them saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises, which meant they were also looking for continued revelation and authority. And the place they found it was with the apostles. So listen to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and, and you've heard this passage many of times, but it gives us an idea of how Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, commissioned his apostles to carry on his authority and message after he ascended into heaven. Now listen to Matthew 28. This is not just about the Great Commission, by the way. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, do you hear that word? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing name, them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here it is. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you hear that? The authority of Jesus was delegated to the apostles who were to lead and guide and direct and teach the church. And so if you look at there are 27 books in your New Testament, 13 of those books were written by the Apostle Paul. Okay? Appeared on the road to Damascus, received his commission, universally recognized by the church. Matthew and John, we're going through the book of John, both wrote gospels, both were what? They were disciples in Jesus' ministry, and they were commissioned as apostles. Now, what about Luke and Mark? We say, well, Luke and Mark weren't apostles, but yet Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. But who was Luke's BFF in his life? Who was it? Paul. It was Paul. Paul was this apostolic covering for him. Now, we know from church tradition that Mark traveled extensively, anyone know? With Peter. And in fact, 
Mark's gospel bears a marked resemblance to the different sermons that Peter preaches in the book of Acts. And we think that, that Mark was probably with Peter recording these, put them into the form of a gospel. We know that, that first and second Peter were written by the apostle Peter. First, second, and third John, and the revelation by the apostle John. Jude, who was Jude? Half-brother of Jesus. Who was James? Half-brother of Jesus. The only letter in the New Testament that we don't know for certainty the author is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was, was never in dispute as a book for the New Testament because its apostolic authority, whether it was written by Barnabas or by Paul or by Apollos, was so well established that the writer didn't even have to remind them who he was. These were the people, the letters, the gospels that the early church looked to. Now, and here's something important to understand. The apostles, as they were writing, as they were teaching, as they were directing the early church, they knew full well what they were doing and what they represented. Hey, John writes Revelation. Look at Revelation 21. There's, this is going to be Bible sword drill, so just get ready. Here we go. John says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And I don't know what that means, but that doesn't sound good. Okay, do you get what I'm saying? John's like, these, this is not like three tips for spiritual success. These are not like, choose your own postmodern spirituality. Be spiritual, not religious. He's like, no, no, no. I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus. Obey the words of these prophecies. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostle. Do you get that? So the prophets are speaking in the Old Testament. Jesus came, he gave us the commission, and now I'm speaking on his behalf. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17 and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And this is the most encouraging verse in the Bible for me. Ready? There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so the next time your Bible study leader, like, chides you, just say, Peter didn't understand either. So there you go, right? But clearly the other apostles viewed themselves and the others as speaking with authority. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. This is, this is pretty clear from Paul. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So we see here there is this expectation there is this framework where the New Testament, New Covenant community was looking for authority, an ongoing written authority from the apostles who derived their authority directly from Jesus. That was the sort of the, the sin quan on. That was like without apostolic authority, you weren't getting anywhere. Now understand something. There were other written documents circulating at the same time. So you may have heard of things like the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Thomas. Josh, I wanted to write a gospel, but they, they wouldn't let me. Anyway, you had all these gospels circulating, all these, these sort of commentaries on the, on the scriptures. And Dan Brown and others make a big deal 
that the church ex- purposefully excluded these from the canon because they painted a different picture of Jesus. And you read some of these obscure gospels that'll have Jesus having a family and Jesus married to Mar- Mary Magdalene and all these sorts of things. It's very simple why those books were never given any serious consideration. Number one, they were written much later. And number two, none of them bore the mark of what it meant to be an apostle. In other words, yeah, the gospel of Peter says this, but that is not what the real Peter is saying over here. And we know this gospel was written even after Peter had died. And so, so there's this this idea that the church was just sort of arbitrarily excluding things that it didn't like. Guys, and I, I wish I could say more about it this morning. I can't, okay? It's just not, it's not true. But nonetheless, these letters, these gospels began to be circulated and grouped together. And we have a, 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 a it's just a, a, a tantalizing clue in 2 Timothy 4 about how this happened. Now look at 2 Timothy 4. Remember, Paul is about to die. He's about to, his head's about to go on the block. He's writing letters left and right to Timothy and this person and that person. What is on Paul's brain? See, Paul, Paul, Paul is wanting to make sure that after he's gone, his apostolic authority is continued to be passed on to the next generation of the church. And so listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Luke alone is with me. Remember him? Gospel of Luke, book of Acts. Get Mark, there's your gospel of Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. Now, this is, this is just an interesting verse. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. It gets cold in prison, right? Also the books, and what does it say next? And above all, above all, above his coat, okay? Above his books, above all the parchments. What was going on in that cell? I don't know. We can speculate. We'll certainly ask Paul, and hopefully he'll have a good answer. Or maybe he'll say they were playing Yahtzee. I don't know what they were doing, but nonetheless, okay, there seems to be this idea from the get-go that the church was passing its authority of Christ down through its apostles, through its people, through its teachings. That's the crucial point. Second question. Second question. That's fine, Pastor Paul. That's, that, we, we, we get that. We understand that. But, but how do we know these letters themselves are authentic? In other words, how do you know, Pastor Paul, that, that, that John actually wrote this gospel? And in fact, if he wrote it, how do you know that this manuscript that we base it on is even accurate? Because after all, it says here in my Bible that this thing may not have even been in the earliest text of the Bible. Let me say a few things. We, we cannot even begin to say all that we wish we could, but we will in this class coming up say more. But we need to understand that the original copies of Scripture, the letters, the, very, the first letter that Paul wrote, which we call the autographa, means the original writings, we don't have those original writings. We don't have Paul's original letter or letters, or any of the original Gospels, we have copies of them. They were worn by use, and they were passed to and fro and hither there. John Piper makes a point, and I think this is an interesting thing. He thinks it's a blessing that we don't have the original copies, because what would we do if we had them? 
somebody in first service just shouted out, and it's true, we'd build a church over it, right? This is what's happened in the Holy Land. Every holy site, some church is built over it. Where do you want to go if you want to see the founding documents of the United States of America? Where do you go? Washington, D.C. There it is. The Declaration of Independence is hidden behind um, this, it's behind this glass, and you can look at it, you venerate it, you come and you pay homage to it. Guys, if we had those original documents, it's, it's easy to see what would happen. We would make relics of them, we would make a journey to see them, they, we would worship them. And remember, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible testifies to the way and to whom we do worship, and that is God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But yet we still have an important question before us. How do we know these letters, these manuscripts are accurate? Let's just kind of talk about what would happen when Paul would write one of his letters. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Remember, most people at that time could not read. And so Paul gave a pretty, he, he gave an ominous charge, 1 Thessalonians 5.27. We think this is by, 1 Thessalonians, by the way, is Paul's problem probably Paul's first letter, either that or Galatians. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, why would Paul say that? Because this is not something to be hidden. This is not something used to control the masses and to manipulate authority and power and money and prestige. No, no, no. Paul understood that the, the Word of God is living and active he wanted it read so that people would know what he was saying. He wanted it read so that people could begin to put it to memory. Remember, there was no Xerox. There was no computers. Writing was a big deal. And, and, and the way this writing would happen is that you would have a scribe who would read the letter. You would have a team of scribes around them at their desks, meticulously copying letter for letter, word for word, as Paul's letter or Peter's letter or John's gospel was read, and that these copies would in turn be circulated to other churches and other believers until they, become, they became very widespread. Now here's the issue. We want to be very clear about this. There are variations in different Greek texts. Remember that these texts were written in Greek, and there's, there's slight deviations because copyists could make a mistake or two, right? So, so we believe that the autographer, the original writings were inspired by the Word of God, but, but these scribes are human, like you and I are human. But when we talk about variations, folks, you, you don't get this idea that, that that whole books were omitted, or, or doctrines of theology were changed. No, 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 we're talking about prepositions. We're talking about iotas, and dots, and tittles, and well, that variation puts the phraseology this way, and this version puts the phraseology that way. And, it, and in fact, the number of variations gives us increased confidence that what we have is incredibly accurate. And let, let me give you an example of how we, of how, how we know this. When you were little, did you ever play the telephone game? You know what I'm talking about? Where you, you line up eight people and then you whisper a secret, you know, kind of like Matt Russo was a Star Wars nerd, and then the next person whispers it to his friend all the way down the line, you know what I'm saying? And then by the end of it, it says something like, you know, who, like, you see how much the, the, the transmission has been garbled in between. Well, imagine I, I wanted to make a statement, and I, had, I got ten of you, and I whispered the same message to ten of you, and I ask you to repeat that to another person, to another person, to another person, and so on. 
And by the end of the, of the row, you might, get a, you, might, you might get some variations in what that message was. But you know, you could, when I say easily, I don't, that, that's a relative question, you could by systematic study determine with high likelihood what the original message was by how? By comparing each line in the chain of command to say, well, when, when it was down to the second generation, here's what the message was. And here, when it down to the third, here's what the message was. But that guy had it a bit different, but these other nine had it this way, so we think these nine are probably right and not this one. You kind of get the idea, right? Except even that's not a good analogy because there aren't ten, ten, there aren't ten sources or manuscripts that we're going off of. Do you know how many? See, Homer and Josephus and Julius Caesar, Caesar, other marks of antiquity, maybe eight, ten, twelve manuscripts. They're either complete or, or some portion of no less than 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. And I, and I don't mean a manuscript like this. I'm talking manuscripts from the first century fragments, second century, third century. People who who were quoting scripture from that time, who had personal relationships with the apostles that we can take, in some cases, all the way back to the time of the apostles themselves. We have a high, high degree of authority that our textual criticism has rendered us an amazingly accurate and faithful Bible. Now, one, one of the ways that we know this is that um, for, for, for the history of the church, with the Old Testament, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah that we had was actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint. And, and we, we did not have an original copy in the Hebrew. It was only a translation of the Hebrew. Until what happened in 1948, a couple of... Uh, couple of uh, of shepherd dudes hanging around near, near the Dead Sea. There's not a lot to do in the Dead Sea except explore caves, and that's what they did. And they found these manuscripts, and lo and behold, it was an entire manuscript of the book of Isaiah in Hebrew, which, which pushed the date of our oldest manuscript of Isaiah back 1,000 or 2,000 years. And as they studied this, they found an amazing discovery, that this ancient scroll of Isaiah bared an amazingly marked not just similarity, but, but, but letter-for-letter letter verbiage of what we have today, which, again, all that goes to say is that through the science of textual criticism, and by the way, people gr- grow up to do this for a living, and I don't know who they are, but we must pray for them, okay? They do this for a living. Which brings us to our text, and we have to answer this question, then, Pastor Paul, why is it printed in my Bible? Okay, that, 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 that's a legitimate question. Why is it printed in my Bible? Why is it here? Well, one thing we need to understand is that for hundreds of years, it wasn't. Okay, for hundreds of years, it wasn't. But I think we have an idea probably of how this came about. Turn to John 20. Turn to John 20, verse 30. Here, here's something that we, we need to get in our minds. John did not write everything he could have written about Jesus. Do you know that? None of the Gospels do. They recorded what they recorded because of their particular purpose in writing. And John alludes to this in in chapter 20, verse 30, when he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. How many? Many. 
which are not written in this book. So you can imagine in the early church that as they're talking about Jesus and John is at the end of his life and he's sharing stories about this thing and that thing and what Jesus did and things that aren't even recorded in his gospel, we can imagine there was probably a number of oral traditions of things Jesus did or things Jesus said which weren't a part of this book, okay? And, and, and we, we, we don't know this for sure. We, we, we don't know if this story really happened or, or if it didn't, but probably what happened over five or 600 years is that this oral tradition, somebody put it to writing. It was attached as sort of an addendum, okay, to, to the circulating scrolls at the time. It found different places in different homes, but it was recognized early on that this was not a part of the original Greek manuscript of the Bible. Now, does that mean we can't learn anything from this? Okay, I, I want to I end this in, in our time here. It'll just give me about five or seven minutes. A couple of things I think we can learn and a couple of practical applications that we can, that we can apply as a part of this process. See, I think the reason that this story is so endearing is that it affirms truths about Jesus that we know from other places in the Bible. In other words, if it wasn't for this, this story, we would still know these truths. And here are two that I think are just fundamental. Number one is this. This gives us, this text, a fresh understanding of justification. And what do I mean by that? The driving for question of the Reformation is, how are you and I made right with God? Pastor Paul, I'm a guilty man. I'm a guilty woman. How does God accept me as righteous through his sight? And this text reminds us, as do the rest of the Gospels, that no matter how hard you try to obey the law, it will never be good enough. We must approach God through grace. That's number one. Number two, a fresh understanding of sanctification. In other words, a lot of times we think, well, God saves us, so what we do is not important. The law is not important. Jesus didn't judge this woman. He, did, he said, you, you throw a stone at me. You know, how, how many times have your kids used that one on, me, on you, right? You know, he who was out sin cast the first stone. What does Jesus tell this woman at the end of the passage? Sin no more. See, he, he passes a judgment on her sin, all right. He knows that this isn't the issue. They're trying to trap him. Where's the, where's the perpetrator? Where's the man? In fact, some of the, the language in this signifies to us probably that these Pharisees who were bringing this charge weren't just guilty of sin generally. They may have even been guilty of that very sin. Jesus says, I see what you're about. But nonetheless, woman, you've been saved by grace, so go and sin no more. That's always the proper order, right? Grace and law, never law and grace. Practical application. I want to remind us of something this morning. If you believe this book, and you put your trust in it, and it's alive in you, remember, you most likely, I, I'm 99.9% sure this to be the case, you did not come to believe this book because you studied the historical proofs, you read evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell a hundred times, okay? You made some sort of detached mental ascent. Today, I don't believe the Bible, but, 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 but tomorrow I do. Is that how that process happened for you? No, it didn't. You read it, you heard it, it changed your heart, it compelled you, it pierced to the bone and marrow. 
You, you were just like David to Nathan. I, I, am, I am the man. I am the woman. Remember that, it, and this is so true, whether you're sharing your faith with someone and trying to make an apologetic argument for the Scriptures, remember, people rarely reject the Bible out of hand for purely philosophical, academic reasons. Why do they do it? It's for moral reasons. It's not an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. It's offensive. I don't like what it says. It's not palpable. And so I'm going to go about in Dan Brownian fashion and look for every means I can to destroy it. Spiritual life, the parallel here is just as, as the Holy Spirit gave birth, okay, to the Bible, because what does John 10 say? My sheep hear my voice. You believe the Bible because you heard the voice of God. And now, after the fact, you can go and say, yeah, there's good reasons for affirming the Bible is true and authoritative. And, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, 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 this isn't just pie in the sky. There's legitimate reasons that we do this. Some of you may have spiritual life right now that's full of doubt and full of apathy. You're, you're not a cynic. You're just doubting. And, and, you're, and your conscience is troubled and your heart is troubled. Just remember... There is no spiritual life apart from the Word of God. We're in a culture that says there are as many spiritualities as there are people. But Jesus, what is, what, what, what's the testimony of Peter? And we, we've seen this in John. Jesus, where would we go? You have the what? Words of eternal life. And because of this, Christian, sometimes it's, it's, it's just as complicated, and, but just as simple as this. Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading your Bible? Are you having a quiet time? Are you in your devotional book? Are you, do you have a Bible study reading plan? Are you in a community group? Do you take notes during the sermon? Do you, I mean, I, I, do you read the Bible? Right now I'm working through a Bible reading plan, okay, by Robert Murray McShane. It takes you through the Bible in a year. There it is. That looks good in Scottish and ancient, right? I, I just want to encourage you. I'm already 15 days behind. Okay, I'm already 15 days behind, okay? You're like, what? Just read a little bit. Just read a little bit. Because I think that we will find true what Hebrews 4 tells us is true. And as I read this, I'm going to invite you as we close this service to stand with me. And I want you to read it with me. And this is, so stand. This is going to be it. We're not going to close with a song. Any of that stuff, we're going, we're going to grow right out of here with this affirmation. And here it is. And I want you to read it with me. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. We're waiting on it. There we go. Ready? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, for all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account.